0: And thanks for dropping in on this episode of Reading Between the Wines, a podcast for those of us who might not have finished the book, but are headed to book club and want to somewhat seem like we'd read the book, and then want to learn a little bit more about wine on the way home. So today I am here with my faithful sidekick, the Psalm of the South, Miss Keegan Moore. Howdy. And I am your hostess, Winona Glass. Today's podcast, we're going to talk about The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner, and this came out in February of 2022. Uh, this book was recommended to me by a girlfriend of mine, and I am not sad that she recommended it. What were your initial thoughts on this book? I really wanted to like this book.
1: Uh-oh. I just wanted to slap Caroline a lot of the book. Well, I mean, that's true. I, I, I'm not going to disagree like with Ella you on that. I like Yeah. I was rooting for Nella. Mm-hmm. But Caroline, man,
0: and the husband, James. James. So the premise of this book takes place in a parallel universe. And so we are in 1791 when Nella is an apothecary and she has kind of an unlikely understudy in Eliza. And we'll go into their characters in a moment. And then it also takes place in present day with Caroline, who is on her 10th anniversary trip alone, We'll explain that. And happens to go mudlarking. I'd never heard of mudlarking before. Have you? No. Yeah. So mudlarking is apparently when you go down to the riverbank and when the tide is low, you can look for things that may surface that Art. become unearthed. Yes, they become unearthed. <laughs> they could be new, could be old, could be hypodermic needles, and could be some relic from the 1790s. So when she happens upon this whole mudlarking tour on accident, one of the things that he says to make a successful mudlarking trip is that you don't look for anomalies. You look for what shouldn't be there, meaning that you don't try to spot something that is specific. You just kind of look at the land and think, what doesn't belong here? And so that's how she ends up finding this vial that has a random marking on it. It's a little blue vial. So again, this is Caroline present day, finds a vial, and now has like embarked on this journey to figure out what it is, who it belonged to, and why it existed. Okay, so now our story devolves back into the 1790s where we meet Nella. Nella is an old apothecary. She owns an apothecary business that has essentially this room that you walk into and there's just this big like barrel that you place your request in with the time and date you'll be back and what you want to have done. And then Nella will have it prepared for you. So people don't really see Nella. They don't really know who Nella is, but they know what she does. And what Nella does is Nella is an apothecary, but she's a very specific apothecary. And that she helps women with different ailments that they may have, uh, as they are coming of age and as they are learning life and experiencing life. And sometimes those experiences aren't good. And so Nella also helps people eliminate their husbands. Eliminate from the earth. Correct. Yes. So Nella has two rules in her apothecary. One is that she will not use any of her tinctures to hurt women she has seen how that works and she will only use her tinctures to eradicate males and you really kind of have to have a good justification for it but she will not use her stuff negatively against women if you're having an ailment like god forbid menopause or something and you need something she'll make it for you or for your mistress or whomever but she's not gonna she's not gonna hurt women. The second thing is, is that everything that she does is recorded in this like massive register book, which I can only imagine is like the spell book from Harry Potter or something like that, right? Because, All the evidence, yeah, line it's by be line, this huge, huge thing. And it's really like the the shop is kind of in this weird spot that's like overgrown by vines, and you really have to know where you're going because it's like an alleyway and different things. So, so Nella has had a very I wouldn't say a very successful business, but she's been popular. She's been, and she took
1: over for her mother,
0: right? Yes. So kind of established Mm -hmm. some business there too with the community. And really people knew kind of word of mouth as to why you went to see her for either good things or nefarious things we'll say. So Eliza is the second of our three characters. So we have Nella, Eliza, and Caroline are our three main characters so Eliza is uh, works for her mistress. The mistress wants to take care of the master of the house because he's not the nicest person. And so she sends Eliza to pick up the poisoned eggs from Nella to cook for the master. So Eliza comes and picks up the poisoned eggs from Nella and really tries to learn from her, wants to, to learn more about her and so Nell is pretty specific about the things like you need to make sure that these are this is the egg that is poisoned and this is how you need to cook it and you need to make sure you put hot sauce on it. And you do not want to watch this process because it is not a fun process. It's not a good process to watch the way that he dies because she's pretty, I mean, she lays it out like how this is going to happen. And it's pretty true to what actually happens. It's not
1: going to be a pretty event for sure.
0: No. And so everything goes as planned. And then after the master of the house dies, the mistress needs to take some time. And so she goes to see her family. And so she tells Eliza, you got a couple of weeks off. Like, I'm going to go visit my family. You go do something that makes you happy. So Eliza decides that she wants to... Learn from Nella. And so they kind of have this unlikely friendship in that Eliza almost inserts herself into Nella's life because Nella's older. She's starting to slow down a bit. Her bones are not cooperating. And so she's not able to be as efficient as she was in the past. And so Eliza really inserts herself. Nella doesn't want an apprentice. Nella doesn't want any help, but Eliza kind of is relentless in that pursuit. And so Nella agrees after lady Clarence comes in and demands a quick turnaround for some tinctures and Eliza happens to be there. And so she's like, okay, Eliza, you can help me with this. So Nella creates this for Lady Clarence only to find out that Lady Clarence intends to kill her husband's mistress and not her husband. And she's like, no, 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 no. I'm not about that. I got one rule and I got two rules, but rule number one is we're not doing harm to women. And so she tells her, no, I'm not going to sell you this. And then they get in like a scuffle and it breaks and... Like chucks it into the fire, right? Yeah. I was like, "Uh uh-uh, you can't have it. Exactly. To which Lady Clarence is like, I will ruin you. Like, you're going to fix this by tomorrow. I'm coming back tomorrow. You better have it ready for me. Yeah. And so not the best situation to be in because now you've aggravated someone of perceived high power or perceived high importance... Rich client,
1: you know, not self-professed, not the ones to upset. Yeah, in general,
0: very well connected as well. It's, I can ruin you, that sort of thing. Even in seventeen ninety-one, we're trying to ruin each other, not build each other up. And so, so they go, have to go on like a quest. They go on a quest because <laughs> they have to get these beetles—a hundred beetles, from a, beetles from a certain area—and they right. can only be gathered at night, and it's a long process. And again. Nell is not in the greatest shape as far as her health and whatnot. And so in the meantime, Eliza has started to tinker with some of the tinctures of her own. Nice. (laughs) Ah, Thanks. (laughs) So she's creating some different things, not necessarily to harm people, but different kinds of things because she happened to go into a magic shop because she wanted to learn more and she meets Pepper And Pepper is very intrigued by what she's trying to learn. And he works in a magic shop. And so he gives her a book all about these magic tinctures. And so she talks to Nella and Nella's like, fine, whatever, do whatever you want. It's it's not a problem. And so they are both working in the shop, coming up with different things. They accomplish their goal. Lady Clarence comes back. They have the powder Eliza goes in and grabs a container that is one of her one of Nella's mom's old ones that has the name of the apothecary has everything on it not knowing that those words shouldn't have been used and Nella didn't pay attention to what she was putting it in. So Lady Clarence takes it goes back home ends up killing her husband not the mistress goes back to the party and has every intention of killing her husband's mistress There's a problem, though, in that the husband is upset, so the mistress and he walk down to a study. The mistress gives the husband her beverage, which is tainted. So the husband ends up dying anyway. So now Lady Clarence wanted to have a baby. She's not going to have a baby because her husband's dead. The mistress is distraught because she is the one, she finds out it was supposed to be her who died, and now she's killed her Sugar daddy. Well, yeah, so she goes to the authorities and mm-hmm. she's like, something ain't right. Yeah. So one of the housemaids, when they're there interrogating all of the staff and Lady Clarence, one of the housemaids shows them the container. Mobile. And. It has the mark of the apothecary on it. So they, of course, are coming for now the apothecary and Eliza because she just happens to be there. The authorities show up. They realize that it's just a room full of books, right, with the uh, vat that people were leaving their requests in. So they're looking in the vat trying to figure out what's going on because there was like rice or something in the vat. Like it didn't, it was pretty innocuous. They leave out the back door, because there's always a back door at some place like this, right? So they leave out the back door, and they start running. Well, they're running, they're running, they're running. They're trying to get away, and they try to blend in at this festival that's happening. And Eliza jumps off the bridge. She takes a little lecture she'd created for herself first. She takes a little tincture as she is going, because she wants the police to think that it's her who is the apothecary. So she jumps off the bridge. Into like icy cold Mm -hmm. water. And like rushing water off the bridge. Like (laughs) not, oh, look, this is a little pond here. Right. So she has this elixir that she's taking that's supposed to keep her safe, keep her warm. And they search everywhere. They can't find her. Meanwhile, Nella gets off because they think this old lady can't have done anything. There's no way. Right. They're like, okay, so you're good to go. You're fine. You can leave. We know that that apothecary is the one that jumped because we saw her take something on the way down. So whatever old lady, you're fine. And so now this is all happening in 1791. So now we come back to present day to Caroline and we find out that Caroline is supposed to be having this 10th anniversary with her husband, finds out right before that, that her husband's cheating on her. And so she decides she's going to London by herself. So she goes mudlarking, finds this vial. So she's on her own adventure, and she meets Gaynor. Gaynor is the niece of the mudlarking guy and works at a museum that does maps. And so she's a cartographer. Yeah. And so they're talking about this and everything, and she's like, I think I know where that place is, like where this came from. So they do some research, all this They find the actual where the alley is that the apothecary shop should have been, could have been. So Caroline decides, I'm gonna go visit. I'm gonna go see what. Alone at night. Right. Like any Mm -hmm. sane person does, because jet lag is real. And so she decides she's gonna go in the middle of the night by herself to find out where this alley is. And she thinks she finds it. And so, again, using her mudlarking skills, she goes in the front door. And she just sees the book room with the vat of rice. Now, here's where I have an issue. We're talking about London. Real estate is not cheap in London. And the fact that this is some sort of like super abandoned downtown, lot, yeah, yet abandoned. Yeah, right. Abandoned lot in downtown London, I feel like that's been there for 200 years, 150 years, and no one has discovered it seemed a little far-fetched to me, but I mean, I'll play along for the sake of the book, right? But I just want to point out like that part, I was like, really? Okay. So she goes in and she uses her mudlarking skills. And she says, like, if I'm looking at this as it should be, like, what is out of place? And she realizes there's one shelf that's like hanging a little bit. And so she goes over and she presses the button and she finds a secret passage into the back shop and she finds the book of everybody's things. So she's taking notes, she's taking pictures of the book and all of this to take back to Gaynor to talk to her about all of this, you know, because again, it's like ways to kill your husband or these are the different tinctures that she used. These are the different ingredients. And she was going to research all of that because she doesn't want to touch anything. Right. I mean, you know how old this stuff is at this point. So she goes back to her hotel room and shocker. James, her husband has shown up there at the hotel room. And now she's got all this stuff on in her notebook where she's doing her little sleuthing that says things like kills husbands. And these are the different ingredients that she used because she was reading the apothecary's book. So her husband is some sort of, I don't know, we'll just say a not smart person in this regard, or he's very conniving, I guess he wants to appear dumb, but he's actually very conniving. And that he says, like, oh, my stomach doesn't feel good. And she's like, well, just go in the bathroom. I've got some stuff in there, and you can take it, and you'll feel better. So James, the genius, goes in and decides to down an entire vial of eucalyptus, eucalyptus oil. Eucalyptus oil. Which. Gross. Yeah. Had to, like. There's got to be warning signs on it. Do not consume. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Topical, topical purposes only. only.
0: Yes. And so James, the genius decides that he's going to ingest the entire little bottle of eucalyptus oil. So of course he's like vomiting and sick. And so they call the, the, she was staying at a very nice hotel because it was their 10th anniversary. So she calls the front desk, the front desk sends up a physician. Physician's like, you need to go to the hospital, but her book is open. So he sees where it says like, kill you know ways Poison. to kill your husband different poisons all this stuff so he calls the police at the same time he calls the um, you know for ems and she's
1: like can i ride along and they're
0: like no, no. you're going down to the station so no, we've got some questions for you so here her husband i mean she's very much in shock she's worried about her husband even though he's not the nicest person and the police are like yeah, so we kinda think you've killed you tried to kill your husband. And even when she goes to the hospital, they're still like watching every move that she makes. So she kinda gets like she's like, I don't know anybody else in London. I don't know who else to call. So she calls Gaynor, who's like her new friend, but she's not really sure. And so Gaynor comes and I and Gaynor's totally on board, like, this is not you, this is not you, until they show her the notebook. And she was like Oh uh she's like, No, you don't understand. I found the apothecary place like we were talking about and there was a book in there, but She and Gaynor kind of have this unspoken thing, you know, and so Gaynor kind of goes along with it. Like, I know I've only known her a few days, but she wouldn't try to kill her husband. That's not who she is. And so eventually they let her off. But it's pretty touch or go for a while. Well, James wakes up eventually and and confesses confesses that he did it. He
1: wanted her to see straight to understand that you'll regret this someday. Cause Caroline was like, actually, I think I'm going to move on and yeah. go our ha- separate ways. I
0: have, I have some ideas of life that doesn't involve you. And so,
1: well, in the classic male form, Ray, James mm-hmm. blames the woman he's of cheating course. with. Yeah. Oh, well she's out of the office. It won't happen again. Oh yeah. It's like, this was a one time okay. thing. Yeah. She came on to me. Yeah. Uh huh. She accidentally left her underwear in my office. Oops. As we
0: do. Uh, yeah. You know? Just... <laughs> we think of all, all these around places town. we can sprinkle our underwear yeah, in life. Just... <laughs> Top drawer. And so everything works out for Caroline. She divorces James. She moves on. She actually ends up moving to London. She gets to go to Cambridge. <laughs> she follows her dream that she had sacrificed for James, but... And two, I think this is something that that we as women have a tendency to do. James never asked her to sacrifice that. She just did it thinking that's what he wanted or that's what he needed. Right. And that would make her a better wife, quote unquote. But he didn't make her not go. She just chose not to go because that was... The family-oriented thing to do. Correct. Even though that's what she really wanted out of life. Because he was, what, an accountant or... I mean, he could have done his job anywhere. It wasn't as though he had a very specific job but she'd been given this great opportunity in Cambridge to go and, and further herself. And she's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it. And I'm gonna do it for me. And so she, now she's got a great friend in gainer and she just moves on with her life. Now we transition back to the now 1800s cause it was in 1791 at the beginning. So we're now in the 1800s and we realized that Eliza didn't die. And that Eliza and Nella are still very much good friends and live together. And Eliza married Pepper and they have kids together. And so her tinctures worked. The elixir that she took whenever she was jumping off the bridge saved her. She's made this very successful life for herself with Pepper and their magic shop. But Eliza is still very much in her life and a console to her. And we all find this out through some newspaper clippings that... Caroline happens to come across at the end of the story. But there's some great quotes in this. Some of the things that resonated with me, one was history doesn't record the intricacies of women's relationships with one another. They're not to be uncovered. And that was one of the reasons that Nella wrote down who she was working with and what she was doing and all that because Women's relationships weren't recorded back then. No one cared who was friends. No one cared. Like it was true. Even when Caroline was trying to do the research, there was not a whole lot of information unless it was when Lady Clarence did something. Yeah, when Lady Clarence was in the news because or in the papers because she was supposedly trying to kill her husband. So I thought that was a really interesting one. So this is Caroline talking right at the beginning of the book. And it says, anything that the last few days has taught me was the importance of shining new light on old truths, hidden in dark places. This trip to London and finding the blue vial and the apothecary had exposed them all. And I thought that was true because like she was on this path. She was trying to figure out her life. And then one, one little step to the right out of her normal path and what was expected of her and what she thought she should do, one step out of that revealed this entire world that now, again, she had a whole new light on old truths that were hidden in dark places. So she had to look back at herself and say, is this real? Why Why did I do this? Or what was expected here? Or did I choose this or was it chosen for me? Right. And I thought that was a really, a really good quote. And then the last one that I have is, the hardest truths never rest on the surface. They must be dredged up, held to the light, and rinsed clean. And that was another one that I thought that's really true, because when we really take a look, when we go deep in ourselves and where we are and how we got here and if it's where we want to be, what we see on the surface is not what our necessarily our our hardest truth is. It's the ones we gotta we gotta dig in there. Right, but if if her husband James wouldn't have cheated on her, right. would she
1: have had all these thoughts looking into herself for her to realize she's not happy and she's
0: not living a fulfilled life? No, I, I I guarantee that she would have ended up gotten getting pregnant. She would have stayed with him. He would have continued to either cheat on her with the woman from his office or, or seventeen one, other people one, yeah. or whatever, and she would have then turned a blind eye to it because she would have... Protecting the kids. "Mm -mm, Now we have a family, and Mm -hmm. now we have this, and I like my life, and all the stories we tell ourselves. So in that regard, I really enjoyed this book just from kind of exposing those stories we convince ourselves are true, even if they're not. It's that uh, Facebook life, right?
1: That's right. happy with their picket fence and kids, but there's a lot of... (laughs) Things going on underneath the surface. So similar line to that. One of my favorite quotes was you cannot be betrayed by someone you do not trust. Mm-hmm. It's like you, if a stranger, whatever, does anything negative to you, you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like you don't know me. Right. But it really hurts and burns when someone you think you know and trust. Right. Is actually living this second life mm-hmm. without you. Mm-hmm. The other one is kind of related to all the uh, elixirs and such. The gifts of the earth, while valuable, are not infallible. Mm. like, you know, like Eliza was playing around with stuff, you know. Right. <laughs> Just yeah. Making her own tinctures or
0: elixirs or magic spells, you know. Now, one of the things that we do need to go back to is they do talk a little bit about wine in this book in that <laughs> Lady Clarence comes in and she's a little distraught about everything because, you know, again, the, the housemaid has gone to the to the authorities about this and she's like, I need something. I need something to calm my nerves. Don't you have anything around here to calm your nerves? And what does the apothecary give her? Wine. 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 So I feel as though we should probably pour something in honor of Nella and her apothecary skills that will calm the nerves of any of our listeners going into book club and not having read the book. Okay. So what are we going to drink, Keegan?
1: We're going to drink some Syrah called Energy from the Rhone Valley.
0: Fantastic. Keegan's going to pour a little something in our glass. We'll be right back. Welcome back all right keegan we've talked a lot about wines we've talked a lot about calming your nerves we've talked a lot about tinctures and different things that can heal you and make you feel better but could also kill you so let's talk more about wine today
1: we're going to focus on sulfites often discussed and rarely understood okay uh, we're drinking domain Verre energy if you can just check out this label here Ooh, very it's fun. kind of apothecary esque. It is apothecary. There's like a crystal on it, and yeah, very cool. A pretty fun, fun story there. We'll get into. Okay, um, but I really want to talk about sulfites. Okay, um, so there's elemental sulfur, which occurs naturally and is found in every cell in our body. Really, um, it's about a half percent of the weight of the Earth's crust. Oh, so it it can be natural. (laughs) Um, And then we've discussed in previous podcasts, but uh, certified organic farmers can still use it to spray the vines to prevent and control mildew. Mm -hmm. But it's often used in the winemaking process as well. You might also hear sulfur dioxide. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that. Which is formed when sulfur is burned. Mm -hmm. Can kill you in large doses. It's colorless, uh, but it is a choking gas. So let's get into sulfites. They are inorganic salts that develop naturally during fermentation. Uh, About 5 to 10 milligrams per liter of sulfites is a byproduct of fermentation. So all wines contain sulfites. Even though that may not say it on the label? It might say no sulfites added. Okay. But it may not say no sulfites. Because all wine,
0: regardless, white, rose, bubbles, red, sweet, sweet, dry, s- sour, orange, red, pink. Yes, all of them. Yes. Contain sulfites.
1: There are some companies that can just manipulate and manipulate and manipulate into where there is no detectable sulfites, which is another one you might see on there. But at that point, you're not really tasting wine.
0: Because it's been very manipulated and very processed exactly
1: so why why add sulfides to wine Uh, number one is it prevents oxidation so you want to drink wine which has alcohol and Mm -hmm. you don't want to drink vinegar you can try true story vinegar's delicious but in small
0: doses on ice cream things like that but i don't tend to want to go out to a nice dinner and drink vinegar exactly And also the other
1: main thing it does is it is antimicrobial. So it prevents the growth of fungi and yeasts and bacteria in wine. Bacteria like to eat sugar too. (laughs) And bacteria often emerge after malolactic conversion. Mm. So another issue.
0: We love malolactic conversion. Eh, Yeah,
1: It's in virtually every red wine and by choice in white wine. I would like to get into a couple scientific studies. Mm -hmm. According to the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States. And WebMD, if you believe anything that WebMD has to say. It uh, has diagnosed all the things that don't <laughs> ever, ail me. Ever. You're probably <laughs> dying. Only 1% of the population has a sulfite sensitivity. 1%.
0: 1%. And that's on WebMD, so... But more importantly, the FDA has, oh, okay. has done this research. Okay, well, because if I feel like everything that I look up on WebMD says you're either you either have allergies or cancer. Yes. So if exactly. it's like you have 1% <laughs> chance of having, that's
1: pretty low. Like I was shocked
0: that WebMD didn't
1: say like 5% of people right. have a sulfide sensitivity. Okay. But it's 1%. 1%. And so it, it irritates your respiratory tract, which makes you have difficulty breathing and it mm-hmm. affects asthmatics more. Okay. You can also get hives, itching, flushing in the face, a nausea, diarrhea. It might cause headaches, but it affects maybe one to 5% of asthmatics. So of the general population, 1% has a sulfite sensitivity. And of that 1% up to 5% are asthmatics. Yeah. Okay. Sensitivity as well. So
0: we're looking at a very small sliver of people who are affected by sulfites.
1: And if you're sensitive to sulfites, that does exist. It is a thing, but headache is not one of the main symptoms, Mm -hmm. which is what a lot of people blame in wine sulfites.
0: when mm. it could be dehydration or... Oh, yes. Lots of other...
1: Very likely you're just dehydrated mm-hmm. and you need to drink more water or you're drinking
0: alcohol, right? which also dehydrates you. Mm-hmm. And chances are you're drinking coffee, which dehydrates you. So. Or you're at high altitude, <laughs> which dehydrates you.
1: Yes. All the above. Mm-hmm. So there was one study in 80 people in the early 2000s. I possibly think this is where the rumor might have gotten started. So there is one study... 80 people, not a big, not a big in here. If That's you will. not a big sample size. A questionnaire was handed out <laughs> to people that already said they were susceptible to wine induced headaches. So you're already like selecting people that already say you're already biased. They have this. Uh-huh. And I, I have to quote this conclusion because it is the most circular reasoning I might have possibly ever read. So in conclusion in our group of subjects, sulfite concentration in wine is related to the risk of developing headaches in individuals who are susceptible to
0: wine-induced headaches. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So I get headaches, which might be caused by the sulfur, but might just be because I have headaches.
1: Or alcohol or yeah, you're stressed that day. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another, Perhaps the
0: reason why you were drinking the wine to begin with is the reason that you have stress, a headache. Yes. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so there's another small study of 24 people, which is self-reporting wine, sensitive asthmatic patients. That's a very specific group, right? That's which is why the number was small because they did have more people, but only the 24 that responded, you know, were sensitive asthmatics. Um, but four responded to levels of 300 parts per million of sulfites and they didn't respond to anything under that. Oh, wow. So it it has to be pretty high and and in the United States we'll get into the numbers but it can have up to 350 parts per million but that's rare mm-hmm. unless you're drinking some bottom shelf wine which it's possible mm-hmm. but most wines are much less than that. So was that your plug to drink
0: better wine? Yes, always. Okay. We'll <laughs> just we'll, making sure.
1: We'll get into like why you need more sulfites and the wine if you're not doing awesome practices in the vineyard or in the wine winery mm-hmm. as well. And um, there's another 2008 study that found no link between sulfites and wine consumption, even in people diagnosed with asthma. And then there's been multiple other studies that have found that people complain of headaches equally as much after drinking sulfur-removed or very low sulfur wines. So in a blind, if they, if they tell you, like, are you getting a headache from this wine? And you say yes, and it's like, well, there, this is a very low sulfite wine. Also, another fun fact. Mm, Do tell. The market for hangover remedies Mm. was estimated to be $1 billion. Oh my gosh. That's 2021 right now. Yeah, according to the Washington Post. So it's a marketing ploy? Pretty much. But, you know, people think they heard this thing that sulfites are causing their headaches, and then they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, well, now I need to drink organic wine because that has lower sulfites. But it's probably due to the alcohol and dehydration. Mm. And another way to kind of test this on yourself, if you really do think you are sensitive to sulfites, there's much more sulfites in processed foods. So dried dried foods has the most. So if you've ever had like a handful of dried apricots, that can be two to 3000
0: parts per million. So you've got a better chance of getting a sulfur induced headache from food than you do from wine.
1: Absolutely. French fries is up there, 1,800 or more in a serving, prepared soup, pretty much anything you get out of a box. Other fermented things like beer and pickles and kimchi, cocktail mixes. This is another thing when people think really? they have issues. It's like you're drinking a margarita. It's like they blame it on the tequila, but it's like, no, but you used a really crappy, cheap margarita mix, mm-hmm. chock full of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I kind of mentioned it, but the maximum legal limit in the United States is 350 milligrams per liter. And that's just for wine? For wine.
0: Okay. As Um, you mentioned, apricots, much higher than that. Right.
1: And there's obviously no warning, which we'll get to. Fun, fun little uh, South Carolina tie in there. Uh Uh-oh. In the EU, white wine can contain up to 210 parts per million of sulfites. And for red wine, it's 160 parts per million. So there is a little truth behind people saying that wines from Europe have less sulfites or cause them less headaches or what have you. Uh, There is more sulfites in dessert wine as well. And I've seen the average on different websites and sources, 50, 80, up to 125 milligrams per liter. So it's, like I said, it's pretty rare to get up as high as that 350 Mm -hmm. number. So I wanted a to little touch on history. Okay. If anyone out there's ever read the Bible.
0: That's a book we haven't covered yet. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> chapter by chapter. <laughs> Brimstone is referenced in the Bible. Okay. Typically, when bad things are happening, oftentimes fire, and fire and is involved. Yeah, fire yeah. and brimstone. I'm, I'm familiar. We grew up Baptists. We understand that. Yeah, it, exactly. But literally since antiquity, we've been using sulfur to preserve wine and food. So the Greeks in the age of Homer figured out the antiseptic qualities of sulfur. They watched volcanic sulfur dioxide being vented through mines and that, that would kill all the rodents and insects mm. around these vents. So they were like, oh, okay, we could probably figure out how to use this, Mm -hmm. right? Eighth century BC, they were using sulfur to fumigate homes and ships to get rid of said rodents Mm -hmm. and insects. Right. So there's a legendary Greek hero, Ulysses, Mm. when he returned from Troy, Mm -hmm. he had his home fumigated. And uh, it's thought to have discovered sulfur's preservative qualities when fumigated homes They went in and the fruits and flowers inside were like pristine. Interesting. And they were like, huh, imagine that. And then also in ancient Rome, winemakers burned sulfur candles in the vessels they used to produce wine. Mm -hmm.
0: And they figured out it was preventing the wine from turning into vinegar. Interesting. I I just love how through science there's so many happy accidents that have happened as opposed to intentional we're doing this because this makes sense it's like oh look all of our rodents died but none of our flowers so but look how pretty our flowers still are yeah that's sweet <laughs> and then by the
1: 18th century sulfur wicks were used to sterilize barrels pretty regularly at the best mm-hmm. chateaus in bordeaux and other places in france so
0: they're using sulfur now as a primer before they even put the wine in right okay interesting And
1: then with advances in chemistry, Mm -hmm. we figured out how to synthesize derivatives of elemental sulfur. Fun fact, it's a byproduct of petroleum and natural gas. Hmm. Interesting, right? So according to Britannica, about 9 million tons of sulfur are recovered in the United States each year from natural gas, petroleum, refinery gases, and some other smelter gases from the processing of copper and zinc and lead ores. So, it's a fun little process, but it is what it is. And then in the early 1900s, winemakers started using
0: sulfur in the actual winemaking process. So, not till the 1900s did they actually intentionally use it in the process as opposed to in the prep or burning candles. candles. Exactly. So, in the winemaking world, this is a fairly recent discovery. Relatively. I mean, 1900s. They've been making wine since the 1600s, you know, where it's new ish new ish Um, so as i said before
1: it's the main thing sulfur is doing is preventing oxidation there's two types of oxidation there's enzymatic and chemical don't really want to get into that but just say things get complicated it's chemistry there's a difference between free and bound so2 and it can like go into the wine and then come out of the wine and some of it's locked in the wine so essentially the levels are changing so even when you read it on a label it might not be 100 percent accurate Um, It's also antimicrobial, so it prevents growth and at high enough levels it kills fungi or yeasts and bacteria. But importantly, it is more active against bacteria than yeasts, Mm. which is awesome because the yeasts are there to turn sugar into alcohol, which is why we like yeasts in our fermenting wine. I don't think I need to tell anybody this out there and maybe your dentist has yelled at you or reprimanded you, but all wines are
0: acidic. Every time I go, I'm like, (laughs) why are all the things that I love so bad for my teeth? Coffee, Coffee, wine, wine, soda, Mm -hmm. orange juice. I mean, you can't have a mimosa because that's like all the acidity in your mouth. Mm -hmm. My dental hygienist said, just make sure you rinse with water mm-hmm. and then brush your teeth. Don't brush your teeth right afterwards because that puts it further in. So make sure you're rinsing with water, drink water, do all that long before you brush your teeth, before you go to bed. I was like, thank you. Good I, to know. I appreciate <laughs> that. You didn't just say, stop doing all those things because right. they it, know that's not going to be the case. You're just forcing me to lie to you then. Yes. <laughs> do you drink wine? Nope. Do you drink caffeine? Nope water with lemon no never Uh -uh. why would i do that nope
1: so we're gonna go back to a little high school chemistry oh boy i did not do well in high school chemistry yeah it's tough but ph is a logarithmic scale so a ph of two is 10 times greater than a ph of three hmm okay So there's a big difference between like three and 3.5 is what I'm essentially trying to get at. So when a wine is more acidic, it's going to have a lower pH. Okay. And when that is happening, it's a sulfur dioxide is more effective and therefore it works better and therefore you need less. Hmm. So wines that are more acidic, read white wines Mm -hmm. and bubbles. Typically Mm -hmm. they typically have less sulfur added. Okay. Since white wines are generally more acidic, they Mm -hmm. have less biogenic amines. Oh, okay. You ever heard of those? No. I don't know what those are, but they sound
0: very intimidating. Have you heard of histamines? Yes. Like Uh, antihistamines, I know you take for allergies.
1: Right. Right, So a histamine is a specific biogenic amine. Okay. And uh, that might be actually causing you a headache. Still, probably likely dehydration, but... Drink more water. Mm-hmm.
0: The one for one. One glass of wine, one glass of water. Exactly.
1: Drink like a professional. You want a glass of wine and then a glass of water. Glass of wine, glass of water. So why does every U.S. label say contains sulfites? According to Thomas Penny's A History of Wine in America, good old Strom Thurmond. Oh, that's our South Carolina tie-in. Then Senator T. Toler. Mm -hmm. From good old South Carolina.
0: Mm -hmm. Both our colleges have things named after him. Yes.
1: They built a brand new gym named after Mr. Strom Thurmond. He thought some were glamorizing the use of alcohol among young people. So he enacted this 1986 sulfite warning label and it eventually passed in 1988. And then it mandates that there's that government warning label on all bottles of wine sold in the United States. And this is why it's on wine and it's not on your dried fruit and it's not on your French fries and it's not on your box food
0: because Strom Thurmond wanted it on there. Because he didn't drink wine.
1: He was a teetotaler. Mm-hmm. Alcohol is the devil.
0: So he didn't drink wine. So we have warning labels on wine, but not on dried apricots. Exactly. Even though dried apricots contain more sulfites than wine. Tons more.
1: Okay. So thanks to good old Strom Thurmond, we have contains sulfites on bottles. And this is regulated by the TTB, which for those listeners outside of the United States, that is the alcohol and tobacco tax
0: and trade bureau. I was not familiar with that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the alcohol, tobacco and firearms bureau, but not the TTB. What do they do? What is their purpose? They
1: regulate alcohol and tobacco. In warning labels? Mm-hmm. So the TTB does not permit statements such as sulfite-free or free of sulfites or contains no sulfites. So literally no American wine will declare no sulfites because they can't. Legally. Legally. But European wines don't
0: have that same disclosure. Exactly. So
1: people, a lot of people think because it doesn't say contains sulfites that it doesn't contain any at all.
0: It's just Strom Thurman. It's just European versus American.
1: They're different, Mm -hmm. but you can submit an application otherwise to declare no sulfites detected or no detectable sulfites. They call that a sulfite waiver or sulfite labeling waiver. And you have to submit a bottle sample to the TTB laboratory for sulfite analysis and so they're, they're pretty much in control of this. And you have to keep submitting to get no detectable sulfites
0: or no sulfites detected so on the label. So now it comes down to money because I'm sure this costs a lot too. And
1: it's not cheap. They're not going to pay for it. It's not cheap. And you're sacrificing
0: bottles of wine for...
1: Yeah. You have it. to send
0: in a whole bottle sample.
1: And even the wine we're going to drink today from Europe. Mm-hmm. He has not added any sulfur to this wine, but because it has an importer label on the back, it says contains sulfites.
0: Mm.
1: Interesting. And it could say naturally occurring, but he would have probably had to have gone through that bureaucratic process he would to have get to that, pay that money. And, pay money. Mm-hmm. and so, Red this tape. wine that costs about twenty dollars might end up costing about twenty five dollars. Mm-hmm. So. Why might you be getting a headache from drinking wine? We've already discussed dehydration. Alcohol makes your body dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Histamines, which are biogenic amines. And then to your red wine, tannins mm-hmm. might be giving you a headache. Yes. So histamines are biogenic amines. We've already discussed that. They come about after malolactic conversion. Mm-hmm. And lactic acid bacteria are capable of producing biogenic amines at pretty high levels. Mm -hmm. Histamines are found in grape skins and Mm -hmm. they can dilate your blood vessels, which can lead to a headache. But because of the differences in winemaking process, we have more skin contact when we're making red wine. Red wine typically contains higher levels of histamines. And so then for tannins, tannins are found mostly in red wines Mm -hmm. and skin contact and little to none in white wine. It's a good thing overall because a lot of people like red wine Mm -hmm. and it helps stabilize the wine, which means less sulfur dioxide is needed. So tannins cue your brain to release serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter, which at high levels has been proven to cause headaches in some people. But tannins are also found in tea, dark chocolate, nuts, certain berries. So once again, if if you're sensitive to tannins you to them in food as well as right. wine. Exactly. And it, they're typically taste. in higher proportions in chocolate, especially dark chocolate. Which is promoted as like a health food. Right. But if you don't have a sensitivity to tannins, then it's no big deal. Okay. Last thing I want to mention, sulfur is the most common additive to wine, but there are over 70 additives approved in the United States that you can add to wine. 70. That seems a lot to it's,
0: me. It can get pretty gross. Is it higher in, in Europe than it is in the U S or I'm no, just the opposite? Okay. So there is a lot more stuff that you can add in U S wines than That's you can. That's illegal in the EU. Okay. So... Such as
1: genetically modified things. So you can have genetically modified yeast that influence the taste and smell. So there's thing, you can add tannins, you can add acid, you can mm. add oak chips, which is the cheap way of getting the oak
0: flavor without paying for the oak barrel. And all of these alter the composition of the wine and the marketability of the wine. Right. Because it it makes it a more palatable, sellable wine. Yeah.
1: You add sugar, it makes it a little more smooth, Mm -hmm. cuts the acid. But European wines can't do this. They just, they have less additives that you can add. Okay. And it's different between parts of Europe. Um, But Mega Purple is another one you might... May or may not have heard of. No, do tell. It's concentrate made from grape skins, so it is technically like natural, but it's Mm -hmm. like a byproduct. But it's Mm. added to wines to give them more oomph, more alcohol, more color. As I mentioned before, the yeast, that you can also add yeast food nutrients, which is a fun thing like diammonium phosphate and urea.
0: That does not sound appealing.
1: Yeah, but that, uh, that feeds... The yeast, so it keeps the fermentation going. Mm-hmm. So if you want a higher alcohol, wine, mm-hmm. or, you know, some sometimes things do happen and your fermentation gets stuck mm-hmm. and you have to add it. But
0: you, you have just to do to, it like at a higher rate whenever right. you're not stuck.
1: But as I said, sulfur is the most common additive. Mm-hmm. It is antimicrobial and and it's preventing oxidation which Mm -hmm. these are important things definitely i just wanted to mention one more thing in the preventing oxidation that sulfur is best known for Mm -hmm. you want clean grapes coming into the winery because the dirtier they are they're going to have more fungal damage And that doesn't sound fun. Right. And so this is when you're going to get some oxidation and other chemical processes in the wine. And these chemical reactions make wine oxygen reactive and it can give some very off putting aromas and flavors. And then Mm -hmm. you have to mask that. So that kind of ties into the cheap wine, You know, it's harvested by a big machine. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it takes a long time to get it back to the winery. And you're already having these chemical processes happen in the grapes before you're even trying to make it into wine.
0: And, And that's also true because, like, I know sometimes wineries will buy, like, the secondary grapes from other wineries. So you're trying to, like, mesh wines together to come up with a flavor profile that will work. And so it seems like that's another instance where this could be an issue. Absolutely. So let's drink some wine. I'm a little hesitant to, to drink wine after everything that you've talked about. You said that this one's an import. It's imported from France. From France. It does have a contained sulfite warning on the label as I'm looking at it right now. However, according to
1: their website and the importer's website, they have not added any sulfites at all to this wine. So all of the sulfites that are in this wine are naturally, naturally occurring. occurring. Correct. Which is like I said, typically 10 to 20 milligrams. So this is Philippe veret He is the winemaker. His father, Elian veret purchased the property in 1917. They have been certified organic since 1990. So they're all about minimal intervention. They're kind of on biodynamic plus,
0: they call it Cosmo culture here. Cosmo culture sounds like a very specific type thing. They have trademarked it. So they've trademarked
1: Cosmo culture. So they are applying ancient agricultural and energy principles to their farming and wine production. Which this is different from biodynamics how? So they're getting into aligning their winemaking process, and they're picking to the earth's energy fields, and they're aligning telluric currents to decide where and how to plant and when to prune. The cool thing about this winery, and kind of you can tell on the label as well, Mm -hmm. they acquired some huge stones from a local quarry, Menhirs, M-E-N-H-I-R-S. These are large, upright, standing stones. And there's a large... like. There's a crystal on and the It looks label. like a crystal
0: on their label. It's, Some fun it's, stuff going on. Yeah. There's a, it's like gold and white and it's pretty. But these are huge. They
1: are wider than a human's wingspan.
0: Holy cow. I mean, I'm not that tall, but I'm, that's pretty significant. Yeah, they're big. So that's accepted science
1: that they are helping with temperature regulation because they are so big. So they can cool down
0: the vineyard because it's a big chunk of rock. So they just like have these like hanging out in the middle of the vineyard mm-hmm. like stonehenge they're everywhere yeah exactly okay because that's what i'm thinking in my head is like stonehenge like okay we can our vineyard is going to be 10 degrees cooler than every other vineyard because we have stonehenge they're placed at specific
1: points where the fault lines and okay. underground water currents and telluric currents intersect
0: so this is in, why in order are- to
1: rebalance the vital forces
0: so this is culture. So this is what entails with the culture is having these massively large minerals strategically placed throughout your vineyard.
1: Exactly. They've also planted their vines north to south, east to west, square grids, and sometimes spirals. Spirals. Yeah. I feel like that
0: involves a lot of math.
1: There's also in the central chamber in the cathedral, which is what they call their winery, stands a pillar And it's got a giant crystal ball on top and it's supposed to absorb negative energy and emit positive vibes back to the
0: wine. So let's, let's drink this positive vibed wine.
1: Well, most importantly, I don't think this wine is faulted, which is what some people say. If you don't add sulfur, it's going to oxidize and have more microbial activity in there. It's the whole point of adding sulfur, right? Smells fruity to me, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely dark fruits. Definitely. Very inky. It's a beautiful color. It's got a light little red tint, but it's definitely on the dark side. Mm -hmm. Um, They have sent this through a long maceration of 45 days or more. Not temperature controlled, which is pretty unusual. A little earthy
0: too. Mm -hmm. It smells really good though. I'm looking forward to it. It's pretty alcoholic, which is typical of Syrah.
1: Tart little finish though. I think it's pretty Mm -hmm. well balanced. They say this wine will last about five years.
0: I definitely feel it in my jowls.
1: Yeah, that's where you feel acid in your mouth. I will say this is a Rosenthal import. So if you cannot find this wine, any red wine from Rosenthal is typically family owned, hands off, minimal intervention, all those happy things we talk about. So it's always a good find. And like I said, this is about $20 on the shelf
0: really a pretty pretty killer value very good for a twenty dollar wine obviously native yeast
1: here as well but these are young vines so i expect to see more depth Mm -hmm. and more interesting things happen in this wine and in another 10 years when they
0: make it do you like the wine very much so the first few sips were very tart could definitely tell it in my jowls but now It's
1: mellowed a little bit. Oh, I will also say we decanted it. So it's been in a decanter for a
0: couple hours. It was not rustic, but it was pretty tight when we first opened the wine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm much happier with it decanted than I was when we first opened it. And so for our Patreon subscribers, we have talked a lot about biodynamic wines. And so we have a really fun experiment that we are doing. Yeah. We have taken the same bottle of wine... We opened it on a leaf day and drank some of it. The next day was a horrible day. Nothing day. <laughs> Nothing. Don't don't <laughs> garden. Mm-mm. Don't leave the house. Don't drink wine. <laughs> don't garden. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200 kind of day. And then on the third day, it's like the perfect day to drink wine. A uh, fruit day. A fruit day. Yeah. So we are going to drink the same bottle of wine over three days And see if it tastes any different on day one, day two, or day three. Day one being a leaf day, day two being a nothing day, and day three being a fruit day. Right.
1: And so in theory, your third day of a wine being opened, it should taste older and less fruity. But according to biodynamics, it should taste more fruity on day three. And so we're, we're going to test that theory. We're going to test it out. We're, we've been trying to drink as little as possible and prevent it from getting any oxygen in there. Mm-hmm. So
0: We'll see. We shall see. So if you are not a Patreon subscriber, now is a perfect time to become a Patreon subscriber because we've got some amazing content that is coming out exclusive to Patreon. If you go to our website readingbetweenthewines.blog. It has a link to our Patreon site so that you can go there and become a supporter of our podcast. We love our Patreon subscribers. You keep us in wine and books, which we could not do this podcast without. So to those of you who are, we thank you. And we would also like to give a shout out to our producer, Stacey Grow and to our audio engineer, Jacob Smith. Thank you for making us look and sound good and coming up with all of these creative and innovative ways to keep us relevant. So until we meet again, always keep your glass half full. Cheers!